in a world gone mad. Only rationality and common sense can save it. It's Andrew and Jerry Save the World with your hosts, Andrew Langer and Jerry Rogers. And now, here's Andrew and Jerry. Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Jerry Save the World. Episode 21, Andrew and Jerry Replace replacement theory i'm andrew langer jerry rogers and uh yeah we passed our big milestone last week so thank you all for continuing to tune in and uh, i'm gonna make another request when you do tune in as i know many of you are because you know we hear from a lot of you about when you're when you're listening uh and we appreciate that very much let other folks know you know go out if you're on twitter if you're on facebook uh put it up on your facebook status or or tweet out uh, that you're listening to andrew and jerry save the world tag me and jerry in fact uh, i'm uh, i'm andrew under at andrew underscore langer on twitter uh jerry is uh, uh at jerry rogers show on twitter that's right look at you uh, see there you go i know these i do my homework um uh, but you know tweet at us and let us know you're listening and we'll may- be sure to retweet that as well by the way jerry i got a um I'm going to bring this up. I'm not going to name the person. I got a, uh, I got a request to do a show. I don't have the time for it, but there's somebody out there who is doing, you know, we try to keep our podcast to an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and a half, hour and a half. Sure. We've gone a little over from time to time. I got a request to do a podcast. I went and, and, and looked at this person's um, feed of podcasts. Jerry, no joke. This guy is consistently doing six hour podcasts. Oh, six. Well, I mean, (laughs) Rogan and and Peterson, theirs are pretty long, aren't they? More or less. Well, yeah, but they're you know one person. I mean, it's like well, here's the thing, right? Um, not that this is where I wanted to go as we sort of introduce this, and there's stuff I want to talk about at the tail end. By the way, we're going to be joined by <clears throat> Phil Kirpin in a couple of minutes. Um, um, you know, it, it's it's they have one person to talk to. When we would do our shows, this is where I was going to go. When I would do my show, and and for a while, your Sunday show was four hours long. Yeah, that's, that's right. a that's a lot to do, right? It is. When, when sure. I was feeling for the morning show, at when the morning show was going into um, was going into when they were doing it for four and a half hours, because right, yep. I guess they're still doing it four and a half. Maybe they're going even longer now. But there's two of them. You know, it reminded me of this, Jerry. I was a four hundred meter runner. I'm sure you know this. I know not to look at me. I don't look like uh, I don't look like I was. At one I second. did not know that you were a 400 meter. Oh, I loved, loved the 400 meters. I was the four. I, in fact, I was the top 400 meter guy on our team a uh, senior year. Then that's not saying much because, you know, <laughs> tell you something. But here's what I likened it to when we would do these four hour shows. When you do the 400 meters, you, you know, you hit the third lap, you know, you go around and you do your you do your um um. Uh, third lap, the 400 sorry, meters. Third lap. Um, uh, when you two laps. Up, I'm sorry. Uh, well, uh, depending on the size of the track, right? So our track was a fifth of a mile, so it was just a little bit more than uh, a lap. It was like a lap and a quarter. All right. But the point is, on a major track, you know, when you come around that last curve in the 400 meters, uh, you you know, you go past your 300 meter mark, your your body. <laughs> And you're going at full sprint. Everything's telling you to stop. Everything is telling you to stop. That's yeah. how I like it a four hour show. So I can't even imagine doing consistently a five hour podcast, especially if I'm one person doing it. Um, I don't know. Anyway, so so it was just that's a whole days of work right there. Six, six hours. It really, it really is. It, it, <clears throat> that's exactly right. Um, so um, you know, and then and then when you're talking about prep time and all that jazz, 
Yeah, Jerry, I ran the 400. I love the four. I loved the 400. Well, you know, Claire Rose, my Claire Rose is a 400 yes. sprinter. Uh, ran it, ran it in a, a CYO. They ran it in high school. And I'm sure um, she, yeah. uh, I'm sure if, if I was uh, back in 18, again, running track, I'm sure she could have uh, kicked my butt on the well, thing. You know what it was? I watched, um, I, I loved the movie uh, Chariots of Fire when that came out. Dun, 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 exactly. Dun. Um, and, and I loved the character of Eric Little. Never liked that movie, by the way. Really? It's, I thought it was so boring. It was such oh, a British film. Time out. When was the last dun, dun, time you dun, watched dun. it, Jerry? Oh, probably when I was a, a kid. No. Okay. Go you, back and watch it. Especially because. I tell you what movie I, I, I do like. I like that movie with Kevin Costner where he plays the um, cross-country coach. Yeah, McFarland, USA. Oh, it's such a great movie. Good, good movie. But my point is, <clears> given b- both of them, both of the of the major runners in Chariots of Fire, uh, Eric Little and uh, Harold Abrahams, they both have relationships with their faith. But remember that Eric Little's entire talent, he attributes it all to God, and he and he's running to glorify God. Yes. Uh, all right. That, you know that, what? I'm going to have to go back and rewatch not it now. That this because... is what resonated with me back when I was uh, a teenager. Uh, I just love the character of Eric Little, um, and and because Eric Little was he was a sprinter, but he was also really a 400 meters guy. Well, uh, 400 meters a sprint. Yes, it is. It is. But he was he he had beaten Harold Abrahams. I'm not the spoilers uh, earlier, early in the movie. He beats Harold Abrahams at the 100. Uh, it's actually, I think, at the time, the 110 yard race or the 100 yard dash. Yeah. Yeah. So um, but but I, I said, you know, something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewatch it, Andrew. Yeah, you, you should. It, it, it's 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 well worth it. Uh, and then, I, as I said, I do have a TV recommendation at the end of the show. Tell you what, with that in mind, Jerry, uh, let's go immediately to our ripped from the headlines segment. Ripped from the headlines. So I, I, I actually I don't know if now this is the biggest news of the day. It was certainly the biggest news yesterday afternoon. Uh, was this issue of of the disbanding of the uh, the disinformation board, um, and the uh, and well first the the fact that Nina Jankowski uh, was not going to chair this disinformation board, and then the announcement from the administration that uh, that the disinformation board was going to go by the wayside. I, I, I don't know, Jeremy. <laughs> no, 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 no. What, 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 uh, actually, unfortunately, I, I look. I I started watching this program on Netflix because I'm uh, I'm finishing up all the shows that I like, and uh, I don't sleep well, and yeah. so if I can't sleep at three in the morning because I and I just can't read more news articles or or flip through Twitter. Jerry, have I got a five-hour podcast for you? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so what I'll do is is that I'll put my you know my earphones on and yeah. I'll watch a show and you know and and if you know 30 minutes, 45 minute increments, you know, by the time the show's over, I'm tired. Yeah. So I, I kind of burn through uh uh shows quickly. Uh so I started watching uh altered carbon. Okay. And I like the concept of it. Long story short, uh, it's in the future. Uh, we reversed alien technology to create something called a stack. Yeah. A stack is where your consciousness goes. So essentially, if you could afford a sleeve, a new sleeve, i.e. a new body, you could live forever or, yes. or, or at least you can live hundreds of years. Anyway, I say this because the last episode I watched, uh, the main character is uh, narrating. And he yeah. says he says something like this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in this world, 
uh, speaking the truth is a form of rebellion. Yes. And I, I was like, whoa, this is absolutely true for America today, our public discourse. If you speak the truth, it is an act of rebellion. And, yeah. and again, I, I'm, I'm making I'm taking too long to make this point. No, no. But that may be but, and that may be a quote from Edmund Burke. I'm not sure. But it's, I, I but know that re- I know regardless, that. it's you know, I'm paraphrasing what the narrator said. The narrator might have been paraphrasing someone else. But the point is, is that every story now just bleeds into the next because yes. everything is about this administration. But more broadly, corporate media, academia. Uh, and 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 the elites just pushing absolute false narratives. Well, so the disinformation uh, governance board was discontinued. The administration said because of disinformation. <laughs> yes. Well, that's I, ga- I, well, that's I, gaslighting. I, right. That's that's exactly right. And and I loved I, I love the cheerleaders of the Washington Post parroting that uh, uh, that narrative that it was the right wing misrepresentation of what the disinformation yeah. board was going to do um and, you know and their mischaracterization of the chair and I, I just said to erica my wife i'm like all you had to do was watch her her own videos read her own words so even, we can't believe what we see anymore here, here's let's 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 i, I want to start here right because i, I tweeted out mm. about this yesterday um this gets into what we were talking about in terms of the beatification of lefties and the sort of the explanations that you and I do. Um, you and I, I, and I know what you agree with me on this. We do not applaud the taking of scalps. We do not see this as, Oh yeah, we got no, not, not, we got not even a little bit. No, no, no. Um, but most importantly here is it, there are two things that are going on. Number one is let's assume for a moment that the disinformation governance board was a good idea. It's not, but let's assume for a moment that it was. Nina Jankowski was the wrong person to head it. Now, this is not to say that Nina Jankowski, I'm sorry, Nina Jankowitz is her name. Nina Jankowitz is not going to go on and do great things somewhere else, that she has uh, uh, talents that she's going to be able to put to you somewhere else. She may be able to write and she'll speak and she'll do whatever. I don't want, I, 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 I'm not interested in silencing Nina Jankowitz in any way, shape or form, either, either on her creative side or on her political policy side of things. But I have a real problem with someone who produces TikTok videos um, about disinformation to the tune of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I have a real problem with this person immediately, right? It's not as though she did this when she was in college, right? If she was a member of the Capitol Steps when she first came to Capitol Hill, um, and then, you know, 15 years later is now, you know, a serious scholar doing this serious work. I would have no problem with 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 sure. what she said in the past. But but let's start with she is not a serious person and this is serious business. Uh, then there is the issue of the things that she has said and the disinformation that she has propagated. Uh, and then past that, once we you know get past the fact that she is not should not serve in this capacity then we get into the debate and discussion over whether or not the disinformation governance board uh, is a good idea, which it most certainly is not. Go you ahead. Know, it's, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the Post and how the Washington Post cheerleads for the administration, but it's really for any kind of progressive cause. 100%. You know, I, I was thinking about this. So the um, the uh, the administration is now using the uh, DPA, the uh, Defense Production Act. To uh, to deal with the formula issue, yeah, uh, and the baby formula issue. And look, here we give no short shrift 
uh, to the fear, anxiety, need of women, mothers, families to feed their children. This yeah. is a serious, serious issue. Um, but that being said, we have unserious people dealing with it uh, because the DPA uh, is an extraordinary measure to be used in extraordinary times. Yes, it's supposed to be for if we get attacked, we need to produce bombers. We, exactly we, right. We get somebody and so and so what's happening yeah. is the administration, this administration created a problem. Uh, with uh, the FDA and with the uh, public health community uh, shutting down this plant. Uh, the Biden administration fed us false information about tainted formula. It wasn't true. Uh, they kept this plant closed down uh, for months and months and months. So the government creates the problem. The government ignores the problem. Then the government uses extraordinary, absurd yeah. powers uh, to to try to fix the problem with measures that actually caused the problem to begin with. And, it, and it, this is this is the Orwellian uh, uh, speak truth is rebellion universe that we live in right now. And it gets into, um, you know, something, Jerry, maybe we should change the Maybe we should change the, the, the title of the episode to episode 21. Andrew and Jerry speak truth to rebellion or speak truth to rebel. <laughs> um, well, well, I mean. But anyway, my, my, but my point is you're right. And this is I, this is going to sound conspiracy theory minded. This is going to sound like I'm looking for reds underneath, uh, uh, you know, in people's closets. Um, but the reality is this is classic Hegelian or Marxist dialectic where you sort of create a problem and then you serve to create the solution to the problem. You know, every, if, every, if everything is pro, if every problem is caused by capitalism, then 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 communism is the answer. Uh, Marxism is the answer. And this no, is exactly what you're talking but, but about. Again, we're, we're talking about because uh, the, the name of the program is um, uh, Andrew and Jerry replace replacement theory. This yeah. is all connected. Let, let me just circle back here in terms of the uh, rip from the headlines uh, and, and the title of the show. And that is for many, many years, James Carvel wrote a book about this yeah. uh, after the Obama administration. Uh, there are academics, universities, uh, there have been white papers, think tanks, uh, pundits, media, experts, democratic strate strategists have all said that uh, that that with new immigration uh, patterns, uh, that the whiteness of America, the problem of whiteness of America is going away, uh, that America, the, the great browning of America. Now, look, and and then they say, you know, demographics is destiny. Now, I have pushed back against this for years. Of course. But what, I've it's, said, it's but what I've said is, is that it doesn't make a difference if a woman is black or brown or yellow or whatever color she is. Uh, when you believe in individual freedom, when you believe in, in, in the family and small businesses, if you believe in liberty, it makes no difference what color you are. And, and time so, out. Just so you're not just taking Jerry's word for it, and for, we won't play all of this. But but you know here is a supercut of, of left leftist pundits and leftist politicians talking about this. It's harder and harder to ignore that the echoes of replacement theory and other racially motivated views are increasingly coming out into the open. In a few years, we're going to be a majority brown country. White people will not be the majority in the country anymore. This will be the first generation ever in American history uh, in which whites will be a minority of the generation at some point. As of 2007, every year, babies being born in this country, whites now are the minority. In 2044, 
uh, everyone is going to be a minority. As the demographics change, as white people become the minority in the country, which is coming. Demographics is destiny. Demographics is destiny. Demographics is destiny, right? The country. All right, we can we can now, stop wait, wait, it there. I want to make clear here. Yeah. This is what they've been saying. My pushback, our pushback has been, no, it's not. Because uh, because if you're Hispanic, Latino, if you're African-American, if you're of Irish descent or German descent or Albanian or Is- Islamic or, or Christian or no faith, it doesn't make a difference. See, this is the, the problem with the left yeah. is that they have group think and identity, identity think. See, for those of us who advance and believe in liberty, it doesn't make a difference the color of someone's skin, but they're the ones. So here's the bottom line. They're the There's ones. Bottom line here, yeah. yeah, they're the ones who have pushed this replacement theory. And then this lefty, this lefty uh, is radicalized because he's been locked down for two years. You know, we haven't had a conversation about oh, yeah. how COVID lockdowns have caused serious mental health issues. Oh, yeah. So this this crazy lefty uh, who was radicalized because he's locked down because of COVID. Uh, believes replacement theory. He's a racist and then goes to a African-American community and murders uh, 10 individuals uh, because he's a racist. But again, the the left wants to blame Tucker Carlson, wants to blame Republicans. Mainstream. He was called this this maniac, lunatic, evil person was called a mainstream Republican by Rolling Stone magazine. But the thing is, this is the perfect example of gaslighting. This is what they've been saying. Yes. And this guy, by the way, uh, he self-identified as an author- authoritarian lefty. Yes. And, 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 and it gets into, right, you know, we talk about the creation of the problems. Um, and, and you think of uh, systemically all of the problems that we're facing, all of the serious issues that we're facing, whether it's the baby formula issue or whether it is the mental health crisis because of the COVID lockdown. Right. Or whether it's gas prices or whether it is inflation. Or whether, I mean, you know, pick, pick an or, issue. Or, or whether it's this uh, simmering, what do we do about the issue of race? The yes. left in this country, they depend upon racial division yes. to get elected. Yes. I mean, th- think about this for a second. And they also depend. I'm sorry, Jerry, go ahead. No, we were told a year ago that the Georgia voting bill was Jim Crow. Yes. Right now, do you understand? We just had primaries. Never in the history of Georgia have so many people voted in the primary, early vote in the primary, and then in the history of that state. That's absolutely. Well, wait, 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 but, yes. but we were told Major League Baseball left the state, uh, the All Star game. Again, this is the the lies, the, and, the and gaslight. Right? And, and and but and keep in mind that that was also built on the lie of the previous election cycle, right? Sure. We had an election cycle in 2020 in which more people than ever had voted, right? And the Democrats swore up and down that the vote was secure, that there was nothing wrong with the, the vote. So, so essentially, and, and then why did we, why did, why, why, you know, crazy, why was this, yeah, why was this legislation going to be a problem anyway? But, so, but essentially know. the left is pushing four things right now, right? Uh, they're pushing abortion, but they don't want to define and say clearly what they're for, because yes. what they're for is grotesque. Yes. Uh, they're pushing replacement theory, racist Republicans, uh, they're pushing the great lie, yeah. right? The, oh, look at all the Republican candidates who believe the great lie, the big lie. I'm sorry, oh, the, yeah, big, the lie. big lie. Now, the big lie is a big lie. Yes, it is. Right? So, again, more gaslighting. Uh, and, and, then, and then lastly, uh, what, what they're pushing, uh, again, is this, uh, is this uh, 
uh, overall that all Republicans are racist. Yeah. Insanity. Yes. And 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 again, it it leads to the the issue where in the end, the, the we are d- kept divided from one another so that we cannot find common ground, so that we cannot solve problems together as a people. Uh, and, you know, listen, my only solace in all of this is uh, how this plays into the election, you know, that's coming up and the polling numbers that we're seeing, um, though I, 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 I am very cautious about, you know, what's going to happen in November. Right. As unhappy as people are, you never know. Tell you what, Jerry, I think we should we should stop there. I think it's a good point. Uh, We're going to be joined in a moment by our guest, uh, Phil Kirpin from American Commitment. uh, When we uh, when we go to our segment that we call expert advice, expert advice. Uh, Welcome to our expert advice segment. And boy, do we have a great expert today. His name is Phil Kirpin. He is the president of uh, American Commitment. He's also, I want to say, the founder and Phil, I don't even remember what your title is at the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, which is, of course, the Mount Rushmore of great economic thinkers in this country, or, or the Beatles, if you want to say that much, uh, 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 to look at it. Uh, or the New York Yankees. Or, or, <laughs> no, not the New York Yankees. I was going to say the 86 or, or Mets. We're Subway Series 2 is this year. Yeah, yes, I, I would I hope agree. so. Um, but but Phil Kirpin, um, so glad you can join us. Before before you came on, uh, Jerry and I in our first segment, we're, we're talking about a couple of different things, you know, you don't just do your economic work and you do your policy work is in a a wide variety of areas. You have been particularly vocal over the last two years about the pernicious effects of the ongoing lockdown and the stupidity of a lot of COVID policies. Um, One of the things that we we were talking about was the mental health impact. I know you wanted to weigh in there uh, on this issue in terms of what happened, uh, the, the, the tragic attack in Buffalo on Sunday, uh, talk a little bit about this, but talk about the mental health issue more generally as well. Well, I think the, um, you know, the worst tragedy to me of the last two and a half years is not the tragedy of the virus, because that's, uh, you know, that's, you can't do anything about a virus, really. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tragic, but it's tragic in the sense of like a hurricane or, you know, yeah. just a natural event that, that you, know, you, you can't do much about. What's really, to me, much worse than that is all of the harm, the human caused harm that we piled on top of what the virus did. And uh, I think first and foremost among the, uh, the policy errors is what we did to children who were never at any elevated risk you know, throughout COVID. Um, it's not that COVID is harmless to children, but it's a normal respiratory virus for children. So it's no different than any, for children, it's no different than all the other viruses that they are gonna are exposed to and will be forever. And so instead of sort of seizing on that early on, and we knew that from, like the February 2020 data. We knew it literally from the beginning. So instead of saying, look, the silver lining in this horrible virus is that uh, it's no more harmful to kids than any other virus. We can give them a normal life and figure out how we deal with all these other parts. Instead of doing that, we did these mass school closures pretty much everywhere, even though they actually weren't recommended by CDC at the time, but it just had a policy contagion. It started and it spread everywhere in a flash. And what happened was, I think the school closures caused the mentality of fear that survived to this point because basically you you read all the data you see all the stories and it's like oh it's not dangerous for children then you're like but they must know something because my school's closed and so people just assumed that there had to be a reason behind it which there really wasn't and uh you know that's had a massive massive uh harm on not just the educational harms they've been set back massively in all their all the different subject areas and i think 
as they get back to standardized testing. Some states are still refusing to do standardized testing like New Jersey because they don't want to know how far behind the right. are. But I think as we get the data, we're going to see that it really was harmful educationally. Um, I'm hoping that we can dig kids out of that hole, although the idea of just throwing more money at the same failed uh, school systems, I'm not sure is helpful to that. Although I do think kind of the, the, the expansion of school choice we've seen in a lot of states is kind of a silver lining to that, but then sort of bracket the educational harms. Uh, and to your point, there have been massive me mental health, social and emotional harms on children, uh, totally unjustifiable, uh, really human caused, uh, not virus caused. And, you know, we just, you know, the, the, there's been a massive increase in suicidality, yep. not yep. so much in suicide. Most of them uh, haven't followed through, thank God, but suicidal well, thoughts. You know, Phil, one, at, to that point, Phil, at one point uh, during the crisis, the COVID crisis, uh, you know, there were, we had data that showed that more children were contemplating suicide uh, than were infected by COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, in the state of Maryland, I think at one point they said 25% of school-aged children had suicidal thoughts. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, very few of them actually committed suicide, which I guess yeah. you would say is the good news. But the fact that you're that depressed, the fact that you're in a place where you're even thinking about it, that's a harm in itself. That's a terrible, terrible thing. So, you know, some people like to point to the suicide number and say they didn't really rise in the, the youngest age group. So, you know, there's nothing to this. I think that kind of misses the point. The harm is the, the fact <laughs> yeah, that they were so desperate they were thinking about. And where we really have seen a big increase in, in the younger age groups, including the pediatric age group, is in the uh, overdose deaths. Yeah. And so a lot of people turn to drugs uh, as a way to deal with, you know, those mental health harms or the boredom or, you know, sort of everything that's going on. And uh, okay. right now in this country, there is no such thing as a safe drug because if you yeah. buy... You, you try to buy a dime bag of pot, it could have fentanyl in and yeah. kill you. There are no safe street drugs. No such yeah. thing exists. You know, and, and again, to, any to, street drug yeah. could have fentanyl in it and kill you. And to that point, right, um, uh, I'm the editor at Rickler Health, Phil, and you know this, but, um, but the, the, the 12 months that ended in April of, of 2021, we had over 100,000 um, uh, drug overdoses, uh, greatest uh, unprecedented number in terms of a 12 month period until April of 2022, where we outdid that number again. We've had back to back years with unprecedented uh, drug overdose. Uh, uh, and, and, and again, to your point, this is, this is an after effect of, of the, or partly an after effect of the COVID crisis, let the, me, let the, me, the lockdowns. Yeah, I think there, that, are, there are a bunch of factors that go into it. But let me, right but now. let's talk and about we're this a little bit, little bit off track. I'll get back to you, Jerry, where <laughs> I think you want to go. But I just to, to, to add on to that, uh, Jerry, we've got a completely uncontrolled southern border. Yeah, of course. Yes. Well, that's where it's all coming from. And so that's the that's the root cause of the change. Yes. In what's happened with drugs? Okay, it was never a great idea to use illegal street drugs, but it used to be that you overdosed when you took too much, when you put, you know, when you injected some yeah, huge yeah. amount of heroin or cocaine, and that's how you overdose, hence the term overdose. Now, a lot of deaths that we're seeing, it's not so much that you took too much, it's that it was laced with fentanyl. Sure. And you didn't even know what you were putting in you, and it was something that was toxic. So, I mean, maybe poisoning would be a better word. I don't know, but it's, a, it's, it's, uh, there's a, it's qualitatively different than yes. what we've seen in the past and much, much more dangerous. And then you add on top of that, uh, the massive mental health harms that came with lockdowns and school closures, which drive more people to using drugs. And then you add on top of that, that we sent out all these free money checks. So people have money to buy drugs. 
yeah. if yeah. they weren't working. You know, you have the free money checks coming from the government that you can use to buy them. And so it really was, is, it was a worst case scenario. But you know, I, I think the, in, in a sense, the, the biggest policy driver of all of it isn't even, I think, the lockdowns or the, the uh, you know, all the extra welfare checks. It's that we're allowing massive amounts of fentanyl over the border because that changes the character. All those other things could have happened. But if the drugs weren't laced with fentanyl, you, you would have had an increase, but you wouldn't have anything like what we've seen. That's a good point. Uh, you know, setting aside the, 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 the drug issue, and we'll come back to the border in a minute, but, but you know, we're talking about this mental health issue and the exacerbation because so many things are, are further bound up in this, right? Phil, you know, we're talking about, and Aaron, Jerry and I were talking about the government creating problems and then stepping into solving them. So there is the, there is the, the, the lockdown issue. There is, you know, people being spun up and turned uh, against each other. There are people being relentlessly told that they're racist um, because they believe in a certain set of uh, values or ideologies. Um, there's, you know, inflation driving up prices. There is, you know, in the very particular sense, the issue of the gas prices, gas prices now hitting historic highs in the United States. And, and all of this, you know, it, it, it really, really, it really, I don't want to say it's really depressing, but certainly it creates a view of what's coming in the world that is certainly not positive, or, or at the very least, uh, very uh, anxiety inducing, because we don't know where this all is going. Talk a little bit about the the management of the economy or lack thereof uh you know we had this exchange earlier this week in which peter Ducey asked the new um uh the new uh, uh, uh spokesman for the biden administration uh, about uh, uh, about inflation and taxing of corporations and how is the taxing of corporations going to reduce inflation and she didn't answer that uh talk a little bit about this well, it was a pretty bizarre tweet uh, from President Biden's account saying, if, you know, we could get inflation under control if corporations paid their fair share. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it, it almost seems like they just mashed together two totally unrelated things. But it's actually even worse than that, of yeah. course, because if you raise taxes on businesses, you're going to raise prices, not lower them. I mean, it, it, it will literally have the opposite of the effect that he suggested. So I think it's pretty reasonable to ask the White House, like, what the heck was, you know, uh, what, what the heck was the president or whoever does his Twitter thinking? And uh, of course, she had no answer to that. You know, I think they've got a huge problem on inflation because um, everything they want to do, the sort of the fundamental elements of their agenda all run in the direction of higher prices, yeah. starting with their anti-American energy agenda and uh, all of the regulations and restrictions and taxes they want on energy. And by the way, you know, a lot of this, they're now angling through the capital markets. They're making yes. it impossible to invest in fossil fuel projects. And they say, hey, there are all these leases. It's not our fault. They should be producing. It's like, well, but you made it impossible for them, any fossil fuel project to get financed. And so they've got Look, the big energy problem. Don't, don't gloss got over trillions. that, Phil. Hold on. Don't gloss over that, Phil. Walk us through that, because I think that's a really important point to make. I was uh, discussing this with a former colleague at WBL this morning on the issue of gas prices and supply, um, and he wasn't buying it. Talk a little bit about the this is what they're they're calling the the gs gsr gse esg esg thank you i knew i was going to butcher that talk about the esg agenda and how this is feeding into uh the issue of of the leasing and prices and all of that well one of the uh one of the biggest um capital pools in the country is a hedge fund called blackrock and uh they've been really they've really spearheaded this idea of uh, using investment funds to drive, uh, you know, essentially policy. 
So instead of government setting policy, they think that investors should set policy. And in particular, um, they have an agenda that's very hostile to fossil fuels because it's driven in large part by social by global warming. They have other woke ideology as part of it. They have other things that they want, um, but they're really, I think, focused on, on climate in particular. So they're very hostile to oil and gas and coal. And of course, you know, the um, kind of the right-hand man of Larry Fink at BlackRock, uh, who was spearheading all of this, now works in the Biden White House, a guy named Brian Deese, who went from Obama White House to BlackRock, now into the Biden White House. And they've got some aspects of this agenda are explicit. So for instance, there's a proposed rule at the SEC right now that'll be very expensive on mandatory climate risk reporting and emissions reporting upstream and downstream that even they say has compliance costs of over $10 billion. And you know, when, when, when the SEC themselves says that, you yeah. know, the real cost can be great. So part of it's explicit, but most of, mostly it's informal in the sense that you know, the White House convenes business leaders and they make it known, they basically say, nobody invests in fossil fuel projects. If you do that, you know, you're gonna take a big hit in the way that you're seen, and you're gonna lose access to institutional capital and all of this kind of stuff. So it's, it's partially through the White House and partially sort of jawboning and political. It's partially through actual regulation, although that rule's not in effect yet, but it's been proposed. Right. Uh, but what I'm hearing from you know, the, it's usually the most exploratory drilling is not done by the majors. They come in later when there's proof that an area has oil and gas, up. but typically there are small independents that are called wildcatters that go and do the, the exploratory drilling that find new formations, find new areas to produce in. And what they're saying is no one will invest in us. We cannot get any capital to, to, to uh, find any new production. And it's really interesting. You look at what's happening, um, Andrew, and, you know, we've had this huge run up in prices and the rig count has come up some, but it's, it has not reacted at all the way it normally does. Historically, with a price increase like this, the rig count should have gone up really dramatically. Instead, you've got it kind of going, it's rising, but not anywhere near where it should based on the economics of what we're dealing with right now. And so there's clearly a non-economic wedge that is preventing oil and gas production from increasing. And, you know, part of it is bringing back EPA rules and leasing restrictions and the stuff at Interior that, you know, we kind of know about. But I think the biggest factor right now is from the financial side. And that's really become the instrumentality of kind of the anti-energy policy of the left. So, so, so uh, Angela, let, let me, let, go ahead, Jerry. Uh, just a, a quick question here too, because I, I, everything that you said, right? I understand. But here's the thing. We don't have the grid, the capacity, the technology, the, the alternative energy uh, to replace oil, gas, and carbon. So what is BlackRock? What is the, uh, the administration? What do these you know, do-gooders, uh, what's next in terms of energy? Or we're just going to have a, a, a time of, of, of uh, uh, energy costs that will really hurt working, working Americans. And hold on, Phil, before you answer that, let me, let me add to this. Or is this all about just a payday out of the government? Is it like a Tom Steyer approach where you spend $50 million because you know you're going to make $250 million in, in you know, monies out of the government? Are they just looking for government subsidies and, and checks? Well, I think that's part of it, although you know the, the vehicle for that was the Build Back Better bill, which is now dead. So I don't know that they have another... Uh, I don't know if they're going to be able to raid the Treasury again uh, for a huge payday, although, you know, I think that's always kind of 
part of the agenda. That's always yes. part of the idea. But I mean, Jerry, uh, to answer your question, you know, they're they're kind of betting it all on electrification. And, uh, you know, the you know, one of the other Biden express regulations that hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as it should is their their EPA uh, tailpipe emissions rule, uh, their vehicle fuel efficiency rule uh, from the EPA. And there's a complementary rule from DOT, but the EPA one is explicit on this assumption. Uh, the EPA one says that in order to meet their model year 2026 standards, each manufacturer has to have 17% of their new vehicle sales be electric vehicles in model year 2026. Well, model year 2026 is calendar year 2025, which yes. is three years from now. So how are you going to do that unless you, you know, the only way you could do that is to restrict the number of non-electric vehicles that you sell sure, down sure. to, you know, so the price of those are going to go crazy and haywire. They're going to start like, throwing in an electric vehicle with your Ford F-150, just like, you know, maybe put a golf cart in the back of it here, it's free. I mean, I don't know, maybe the market will figure out a way around it, but, uh, you know, they, they're betting on essentially electrification and battery technology is going to make it possible to have grid level storage of solar and wind so that they're you know, so they're no longer intermittency. But except we're, run, we're, we're running out of the, the put, rare earth material to make these batteries. We've got a massive lithium shortage right now. The lithium yeah. price is parabolic. <laughs> just gone through through the ceiling. Uh, you know, we've got, you can't get a mine approved in the U.S. I mean, I think the, the average time from, you know, the, from its scoping to final permit approval for a new mine in the U.S. is now almost two decades. Jesus. So, you know, we, if we wanted to produce the, the rare earths and the lithium and all, it's not like these things are actually hard to find. There are resources, but we won't develop them. Yeah. China's locked up all the ones in Africa for the most part. And so, yeah, I mean, we're going to have, I, I think that we're actually going to hit worse resource constraints if we go down this electrification path than we have with fossil fuels. Well, I mean, and, and let's uh, hold on for a second. And let's not forget that there are massive environmental costs to doing sure. all of this. And, and certainly there are the carbon costs, right? Because we know the Chinese, well, the Chinese are probably using human labor to do a lot of this, but we certainly know that the Chinese don't care about, you know, non-point sources of emissions in terms of what they're doing to drill in China or Mongolia or wherever. Um, you know, here in the United States, there are there are carbon costs as well to drilling this stuff. You are not running an excavator with uh, electricity. You're not running it on solar power. You know, you're running it on diesel and diesel is at an all time high right now. So this is, I mean, really is, again, creating a problem and then stepping in there and trying to solve this problem. And let me ask you this, Phil, because you may you may have the answer off the top of your head. I don't know how many cars we sell in America every year, but 17 percent of vehicle sales. I mean, I could go look it up while, while, while we're looking here. That's a huge number of cars that they have to sell that are electric vehicles. And again, as Jerry was making the point, we don't have the grid capacity now, you know, to, to serve those vehicles. How are we possibly going to serve millions upon millions of vehicles, you know, in 2025? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, I think there are real severe practical challenges that the sure. administration wants to do. But, but uh, and, and so that's the energy piece. Then, you know, you've got the spending problem, you know, the, uh, they, they want to spend trillions of dollars uh, that we don't have, which of course means expansion of the Fed balance sheet. Um, they, they're, we're essentially, yeah. you know, we've been living on printed money uh, really for the last two years. And, you know, both parties are guilty of this because they, this happened a lot under Trump. They passed, I think, something like $4 trillion in COVID money. But, you know, Biden came in 
And the first thing he did was that we're going to spend another $2 trillion. We don't have, uh, you know, essentially printed money. We're going to shower it onto everyone's head like crazy. Um, and pretty much everyone told him this is going to be massively inflationary. Um, and they did it anyway. And, you know, I think Fed policy, they're finally talking about starting to, uh, you know, trim down the balance sheet and they're going to let some of the, uh, the debt run off and not be replaced. But, um, you know, they're so obsessed, though, with interest rates, like, you know, like raising interest rates is the solution to everything. And to me, if you continue, if the money supplies, if, you, if the growth of the money supply continues, uh, we're just going to have inflation and high interest rates, which is, uh, which is not an impossibility. We had that in the 70s. So the yeah. idea that just raising interest rates is going to solve the problem, I think the Fed is out to lunch. You know, they still have a zero reserve ratio, which they started at the beginning of COVID, which is say. Banks don't have to hold any reserves at the Fed. They can create you know, as much money as they want. So I, I think that uh, Fed policy is really bad. Uh, and it's partially driven by all the government spending, which there was no way to finance other than having Phil, the Fed by the bond. Let me, let me ask money. you this too. Because uh, I, and by the way, they just confirmed Powell to a second term, 80 to 19. So the one thing that both parties can agree on is that he's doing a great job. By, so, hold on, Jerry. Hold on, Jerry, before you ask the question. By the way, then that number is we, we sell about 4.7 million new cars every year. So roughly, we have to sell 800,000. They're mandating that 800,000 of those will have to be uh, uh, zero emission electric vehicles. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jerry. So, or you have to shrink the denominator. Okay. Right, right. Well, thank Which, you very much. Good so, point. Thank so, you. Yeah. So, so two things here. I mean, everything you lay out is devastating for, uh, for Americans who work, small business owners and entrepreneurs and, and, and those who live, you know, uh, paycheck to paycheck because they're you know, they're, they're, they're putting their kids in private school because public schools are failing them or any number of reasons, which is why on this program we've talked about before how the left-right dynamic has changed. It really is elite versus working people in this country. But here's the question, though, and that is, it's not like if we elect Ron DeSantis in 2024 that uh, this, uh, this snowball is going to stop rolling down the hill, getting larger and bigger. Uh, these policies, uh, energy policies, these uh, fiscal policies, they it's not like one administration can stop them. Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, in particular, you know, the, to, the, to the extent that they're not driving energy policy through capital markets and investment funds, yeah. Yeah. you know, that makes it very hard to reverse even when you do have Washington because, you know, you can, you can cut the regulations and you can cut taxes maybe or whatever, but if nobody's going to invest in the project, the projects aren't going to go. And so but, it does present, I think, a new kind of challenge. And but doesn't but, but, but doesn't don't these policies look what you're saying? There are intelligent people working in this administration. They know they must know the outcome of what their policies, uh, what the outcome is going to look like. Uh, but they still go forward. Is this because they've just lost it? It's a religiosity now. This is a faith to them. And because 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 even like back, uh, BlackRock, the, the, the idea of, of, of managing these these funds is to make more funds. And so if you refuse to invest in what should be what is inexpensive, uh, ubiquitous energy for these other kind of uh, uh, lefty, do good, woke uh, investments, at some point you're going to stop making money. Right. Yeah, well, what's happened, unfortunately, what's happened to this point has been kind of a bandwagon effect. And so the, the kind of the, um, you know, the socially responsible investments have outperformed, but that's because there's been a stampede into them that's been non-economic in motivation. And so they've been sort of artificially inflated by 
kind of the. But the, someday the, 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 the. But they the said, so, correct. To your point, at, at some point, the, the economic fundamentals inevitably assert themselves. And, uh, you know, for that reason, um, yeah, I think there was just some announcement. I forgot who's doing it. There was just some announcement I, that Peter Thiel's investing in a new fund that, like, explicitly ignores all of this stuff and just invests on fundamentals on the bet that that's going to be where long-term performance is, yeah. to your point. And so, you know, eventually markets do correct. Uh, the question is, how much pain do you have in the interim, where you sort yeah. of you go and you inflate a bubble of something that doesn't make economic sense because of these good sort of political motivations? And, 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 and the left has been brilliant, Andrew. I'm sorry. The left, the left has been brilliant, right? Uh, my mother-in-law, I use her, I, I use her as the example. She is a, you know, she's in, she's a senior citizen watches good morning America living on her retirement, uh, has a house in New Jersey and she blames everything. Oh, the Jerry, did you see the price of gas? Those damn gas oil companies, you know, did you see the cost of this? Oh, those, you know, those Republicans and, and they're pro business, this, or the left has successfully, pin the blame for the bad outcomes of their policies on 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 right of center or or entrepreneurs yeah. or or small businesses i think the polls show that that, that those messages you know they definitely work with some people but it's yeah. not it's not even close to most people it's like let's, 20 or 30 percent of people right. believe it's well, greedy corporations something like that so you know your, your mother-in-law is not unusual, but it's not most people. It's okay. a, it's not a winning message in an electoral context. It's, anyway. it's funny. So, I, I mean, I think the uh, everyone blames Biden. You, everyone blames the president whenever things go wrong. Frankly, all right. I, you know, I, I don't I think most of this inflation was baked in before he came in, by the way. So it's not totally fair to blame him, although I think he put fuel on the fire in sure. every policy area. Uh, so he certainly has made things worse, but you know, it's, uh, people, people tend to blame the president and the president's party. So I do think it's going to be a big Republican year. The question is kind of like, you know, okay. And what do they do with that? What do they do with it? That actually makes any difference, especially because, you know, so little governing is actually happening in Congress anyway. And so you have Congress and then, and then what, you know, there's so much money they've pumped into everything already. It's not like they need to go back and ask for money. I mean, they've got all these giant, you know, pots of money sitting around that have already been appropriated. And so, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I know you guys are on board with this, but I think, you know, the, our main institutional problem in this country is that Congress never wants to do its job. Right. It right. never, you know, when it actually gets its act together to pass something, it's some broad, vague thing that just punts the decision making to the executive, right. and they don't, it's you know, like the, this baby formula thing that's going on right now. The only thing I ever see Congress doing is saying the administration should do this, the administration should do that, whatever. <laughs> it's like you guys could write a bill. Like, where's your bill to like cut tariffs and bring in foreign form? And like, you could like force the administration to do things instead of just talking about. It. Yeah. Um, and, and with that in mind, I mean, I want to, I want to try. And by the way, just so you all know, everybody who's listening or watching, um, to Phil's credit and to his colleague Steve Moore's credit, colleague at the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. When we were talking about in the summer of 2020, spring and some, really summer of 2020, talking about the, what the government could do and should be doing with regards to COVID and the economy, uh, you were you were both very cautious about what the, the impacts of handing out huge amounts of cash to people yeah. uh, and what that was going to do to the economy overall. Let's let well, I well try Andrew, we really wanted to do the payroll tax holiday instead. Yeah. Uh, the idea being that you want to reward work rather than, you know, reward non-work. Yeah. And they, they went the other direction. They did the massive oh. bonus unemployment benefits. And by the way, 
the states came back when they ended them. So the states that ended them early, the economy came back before the ones that didn't. So it was a pretty clear effect there. And 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 let's remember that the the, the benefits of a payroll tax holiday um, not only do they have the effect of immediately giving people who are working the cash that they need, um, but it also takes out of the all of the government involvement and the potential for corruption and people taking what they're not what they're it's not a, the, do. The, the fraud rate in all of the COVID yeah. programs is the worst that we've ever seen in anything. That's I mean the unemployment the unemployment uh, the bonus unemployment alone. I think GAO said $160 billion was stolen by fraudsters. There you and go. then like PPP had a very high fraud rate. You, you, you sort of, you look at all these programs and I think, you know, out of the, you know, out of the, whatever it is, 4 trillion in COVID relief, you know, probably at 800 billion was stolen across yeah. these programs, some insane number. I mean, there was one uh, presentation at the, at, at, uh, at a meeting recently and it was, you know, the guy was self-interested because he was from like, a company that does identity verification or whatever, but okay. he had a pretty decent presentation. So, I mean, he wasn't making it up. He said that the Chinese stole $200 billion of US COVID relief funds through the various programs. And wow. It was like equal to an entire year of their defense fund. That's astounding. Wow. And the Lord, no. I mean, it really, well, you know, he, really was, he might crazy. be exaggerating, I get it, but sure. I mean, still just the fact on order but, of magnitude let's say, that let's we're say even that, talking about. Yeah, that. let's say that it's, let's say that it's a 10th of that. Let's say that it's yeah. 20 million. I mean, it's still a huge amount of money going to China, but, but this is where I wanted to go. Cause we had, we had primaries in North Carolina and Pennsylvania this week. We've got other primaries that are going on. Let's talk about the, the, the polling numbers. I mean, I said this, I had a conversation. I did a, a TV show last week uh, in which uh, one of the people I was debating said that well, the problem that the Biden administration has is its messaging. They're not getting their message out. And I said, wait a minute. They can say whatever they want, but people are seeing, again, getting back to these kitchen table issues, the baby formula issue, the gas issue. Folks are seeing what's happening right in front of them. Let's talk about the polling numbers and let's how this translates into what we've been seeing in these primaries and then what we might see in the fall. Well, Republican turnout is uh, up. Uh, as a share of the primary electorate in basically every single state this year, which is usually a pretty good indication of the kind of year it's going to be. And, you know, like in Pennsylvania, I think in 2018, it was 52-48 Democrat in the primary. This year, it's the exact opposite. It's 52-48 Republican. Uh, so, you know, it's probably going to be the opposite of what 2018 was. That sure. was a good Democrat year. This is going to be a good Republican year. And, you know, that's pretty natural in the first, you know, the first midterm of a presidential term that you have that snapback it's uh there are a few exceptions but you almost always get that snapback because people you know first of all the american people love divided government they're smart enough to know you give one party control of everything bad things happen you need to get you need to get division and uh you know democrats have everything right now and they're not delivering anything beneficial to anyone and you, you can't you can message to your point you can message all you want but when somebody's tank shows empty, they have to go fill it up, no matter what the current price is. And if it's four fifty, you know, it's not an optional thing. No, you do, another, you think, do, do you think the American people? This is this has been my fear, right? I remember being 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 a younger person, and my dad would talk about how you know, hey, the cost of gas in America is sixty nine cents or a dollar five, whatever it was. But in Europe, even even then, in Europe. Uh, uh, gas gas uh, per gallon was was more than the American price, and as a kid, I would think I, I would I would worry to myself. Well, what if Americans get conditioned to the high price? You know, 
you know, uh, oh, gas is just five dollars. Gas is just five dollars. And and we stop pushing back. We stop. It, it stop. It, it stops becoming. Oh, that's a high price. Do, yeah. do, do you see that because of the skewed political discourse, because of how media reports on these issues, that we're going to be conditioned uh, to uh, accept uh, harsher, uh, less free conditions, less modernity? Well, you know, I think that um, I don't think the American people will tolerate a significant I agree. living standards. Okay. And so, you know, I think, you know, we've we've got prices right now that are significantly outstripping wages. And so you, you've got a situation where uh, real incomes are declining. And, you know, that people people are not going to tolerate that for very long. Uh, okay. They're just not. And so I, I, you know, I guess you could see a scenario where that happens, but that's kind of like, a, to me, I, I'm not pessimistic enough to, to think that Americans are just going to accept reduced standard of living. And by the way, Europe, Europeans have much lower standard of living than Americans uh, on, on average, the median, it, you know, sure. it's like the richest European countries are like the poorest U.S. states, essentially, if you, if you rank them on that basis. And so, but, they, but, but they tolerate it, though. It doesn't have to be yeah. that way. Yeah, but they tolerate it. I mean, I, I used to joke around when, when I was at pharma uh, and, you know, fighting off good and, and, and big pharma does bad things sometimes, especially when they cave into we'll set, you know, yeah, we'll accept price controls as long as we're guaranteed volume. So I'm not, you know, I'm not advocating for pharma here. But when I was at pharma, we were fighting price controls constantly. Uh, and, and, I, and I remember one time I was talking to him, I was talking to a Republican senator. Uh, who wanted uh, who who liked this idea of of of, um, of he had a price he had a price control bill, and I tried to explain to him there was a price control bill, and he said no it's not this is why it's not and I said and 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 I said to him you know what's going to happen I said you're going to turn the pharmaceutical industry into a utility, and then sometime in the future, thirty years from now we're going to get someone uh, to say you know what we need new cures we need new medicines new therapies someone should privatize. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry. And I feel sometimes that's where we're heading uh, with energy policy, with healthcare policy, with a lot of these policies, you see more government interference, uh, you yeah. see, and, and, and someday we're going to have like a Margaret Thatcher moment, you know, right? And, and someone will say, hey, why don't we unleash the, uh, uh, the, the ingenuity of the American people? I mean, I mean uh, it's interesting me. you bring that up because uh, the you know, we've been saying for a while that the Democrats have no real answers to inflation. They will inevitably go to the political answer of price controls. Yeah. And it's going to be and rationing. back to the and ra 70s. Watch rationing is going to come. Uh, we've, said, we've said, look, we're on track for a back to the 70s, learn yeah, nothing, yeah. price control disaster. And the example, you know, the most obvious example we point to is that they're trying to pass explicit drug price controls and yeah, build yeah. back better. And now in the revived sequel to build back better, whatever it is, uh, you know, the, 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 not a price control in that bill, of course, is, uh, you know, negotiation. We'll negotiate. Yeah. If you don't take the price we want, we'll tax you 95% of your total sales. It's a trade so it's like, yeah. We're not setting the price. We're just telling you what it is or giving you the option of a nice. So, so sell, tax. sell me your brand new, beautiful widescreen TV uh, for $10. Well, wait, I spent 400, but there's a gun to your head. Yeah, right. right. Or, Sell or, to or me at this you, price. Or, right. So, I mean, they've been pretty explicit, not quite explicit in saying price control, but pretty obvious about it in that sure. one context. 
And then people say, oh, well, that's because that industry, you can do it. They're not politically accountable. It won't be, it won't go beyond that. And I said, I, it's going to go beyond that. And, you know, to this point, Medicare helps set the prices for the rest of, 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 of the healthcare system. They're, they're floating the idea of general wage and price controls. I don't yes. think they're going to use the term, uh, but they want, they want to artificially keep a lid on inflation to survive politically, even though that's going to make the problems much, much worse. And Nancy Pelosi's got a bill, I think it might be up in the House this week, to impose price controls on energy, uh, to, you know, to have government set prices unless the company can justify an increase. I mean, yeah. it's got all this crazy. Well, and, and Elizabeth Warren has has the same bill uh, or similar bill in the Senate where you know, where if you go above a certain rate, yeah. you have to justify the okay. reasoning. So you know, if they pass crazy. something like that, we will get real shortages in the style of the yeah. 70s where you get where stations don't have, you know, so uh, they are they're repeating some of the worst policy mistakes uh, that we've ever seen in the history of this country. Uh, they're doing it because it is impossible to it, it's impossible for them to actually address the causes of inflation without abandoning their whole core policy agenda right. on energy, on spending, uh, on monetary so, policy. So, pol- so, so politics for them is religion, period. Pretty much. I mean, they're, they're ideologically committed. I put it that way. You know, so, it's, so, uh, you know they're, they're ideologically committed. And so they're looking for a political gimmick. They're looking for some way just to get by, not for, for a real solution. And uh, frankly, you know, I think... When Republicans get control again, and they can start when they get Congress, even though things will be vetoed, but when they get control again, they've got to, they've got to get the big, they've got to get serious about the big issues, yeah. okay? They can't, you know, when they won all three branches last time, when they won off, you know, House Senate and Presidency last time, and everyone said, great, where's your health care bill? Pat Toomey said, oh, you know, we don't have one because we thought Hillary was going to win, okay? They better have a plan this time. They better have a real plan. They better be able to deliver something on the big things. They better have a healthcare plan, okay? They better have an energy plan. Uh, they better have a way to contest the problems that we're seeing in our capital markets and, and make it possible to get financing again without a huge thumb on the scale. And frankly, they better have a monetary policy reform bill that does something other than just, hey, Fed, do whatever you want. You know, well, well, what, I'm balance. sorry, but what the hell are they doing now? Why aren't they, again, thinking this through, coming through with proposals? Why aren't they partnering with your organization, with AEI, with Heritage, with the myriad other uh, idea factories that we have? Look, look, the right, the, the right in this country, uh, uh, right of center uh, investors and have been given money to the think tank complex uh, for 40 years, to the Manhattan Institute, to AEI. You, I mean, you name it. What do we have to show for it? What do we have to show because we, we have no one in the Congress, and, I, and I, I exaggerate maybe to make a point, but I'm not even sure if I'm exaggerating. These ideas you're saying should be flo- being floated around right now. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, there's some good ideas. You know, I think the um, there's there's a there's a healthcare plan that's sort of called sort of the consensus plan that most of the conservative groups have signed on to, and it's around the idea of a of a massively expanded. Uh, HSA and uh, deregulation of a lot of other things, price transparency. I mean, there are a lot of provisions that people can kind of agree on. The challenge is, you know, how do you write an actual bill? And once the lobbyists descend and how do you deal with, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, the, the biggest problem we have on doing anything big on healthcare is that um, the, you know, you've got like the biggest, most hated industries in, the, in this country, the hospitals, the insurance companies, and the pharmaceutical <laughs> yes. companies. Okay? And by the way, the, 
What does it tell you that like the big <laughs> industries whose job it is to like save your life and make it better are the most hated industries? And it's their, their, their own fault too. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I, I especially think the hospitals have been horrendous for the last two years. Basically, you know, the hospitals for the last two, I, I now hate the hospitals even more than the insurance company. The hospitals are the, like the root of all our problems in healthcare. But the hospitals for the last two years have been at the lowest utilization in the history of this country. They've been mostly empty. They've been living on bailout dollars. But every time some reporter asks them, oh, are you overwhelmed with COVID? They say, oh, yeah, we're it's out of control. It's off. Yeah, yeah. So you have these headlines everywhere sure. about how terrible and overwhelmed the hospitals are. And then you look up their utilization. It's the lowest it's ever been. And you say, what the heck is going on? Like, what, why did they decide that this was a sensible business strategy? You know, the only thing I can make of it is that we've seen another huge wave of consolidation, that yeah. the large hospital systems have figured out that if you keep everyone scared to go to the hospital because, uh, you know, they don't have room for me or there's too much COVID there and the utilization collapses, the small ones all get consolidated. They can't stay in business. And so we've had another boom. And so the hospital systems are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, I think that we've got to figure out, you know, how to reverse the policy drivers of that. And I, we've got to be like willing to say, we're going to take on all the big interests. We're going to make healthcare about you controlling the dollars, having a choice of a provider who can be standalone, doesn't need to be a part of some huge system that's bureaucratized. Because I feel like these private bureaucracies in the hospitals and the insurance companies have become almost as bad or have become sort of part and parcel of the government bureaucracy. 100%, without but, a doubt. But Republicans listen to them because they but, show up and they're like, oh, I'm BCBS or I'm whatever. And so they've got, you know, the, the hospital is often the largest employer in a district, especially at the state level. And so they show up and say, you know, I need you to do the politicians say, okay. And nobody is focusing on, or very few people are focusing on the issue of the fact that we have a declining supply of medical care in America. We don't have enough doctors, don't have enough nurses, don't have enough physicians assistants, and both, right? The hospitalized systems or the systems that are controlled by the big insurance companies. And I apologize, my, my dog is trying to climb up in my lap. Um, all of them sort of are, are working to, stop buddy, are working to, uh, to, to keep things going the way that they are. So anyway, I'm sorry, guys. Let's uh, Phil. Let's talk about let's let's shift gears for a moment. Let's talk a little bit more about the 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 big ticket issues and what uh, the committee to unleash prosperity and what uh, uh, American commitment are both working on. Well, we did a um, we did a big study at committee that got a lot of attention about a month ago on uh, pandemic performance across the states where we, we looked at outcomes on mortality, education, and economic performance. And we sort of uh, looked at relative performance as Z-scores, and then we summed them and we ranked the states to kind of see who did well and who did badly, kind of a balancing all of but, that. And, what and, that's released for, and that's released now. Yeah, we put that out about a month ago. National you know, Bureau of Phil, on, a, on, a, on a side note, I'd love for you to come on the, uh, BAL with me and go through that report a little bit. Oh yeah, I'll, no, I'll I'd be happy to do that. I'd yeah, be yeah. happy to do that. Maryland was kind of an interesting. Uh, Maryland was kind of an interesting state because they did they were they did pretty poorly early in the pandemic, but they really improved. Uh, they really improved on almost all the areas, kind of as it went on. And uh, what what drags down their score overall, though, is they had some of the longest school closures in the country. Yes, so yeah. that really really hurts them in our rankings. I don't have it in front of me, but I know in that area they were towards the very bottom okay but you know so we did that one which got a lot of attention you know we do our free daily newsletter if you want to get that uh committed prosperity.com i do that with steve moore and john fun we send it out every week that you get kind of our we try to give like facts and information not just opinion and kind of things that you might have missed interesting charts and that kind of thing so 
Uh, we cover like the basic, it started as almost all COVID. Now it's still occasionally COVID, but it's more kind of like sure. inflation, economics, energy, that kind of stuff. Uh, so people can sign up for that. Uh, we've got a new paper that's coming out soon on the uh, private sector experience of the Biden administration. And it's very, very low. And the vast majority of their key decision makers have never worked in the private sector or have only a year or two. So that's going to be the next uh, committee product. Uh, it's going to come out. Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but pretty soon. And then on the American commitment side, we've been very focused on uh, the votes on overturning uh, aspects of COVID mandates. And so we've had five successful votes now in the Senate. Uh, we had the Senate has voted successfully in the Senate passed uh, bills to overturn the OSHA vaccine mandate, the CMS health worker vaccine mandate, the to terminate the national emergency, to ban the airplane mask mandate, and to ban the preschool mask mandate in Head Start. So we've had five uh, bills passed in the Senate, some of them very bipartisan. There were eight <laughs> Democrats on the, on the uh, on, airplane mask. One. On, on, on this issue. So Andrew and I were talking earlier about how the um, the infant formula issue, uh, you know, the uh, the administration has, uh, you know, it has, uh, you know, the the DPA is, is going to be used to uh, to to bring in formula from overseas or what or what have you. And, and it's I think it's absurd uh, because, again, it's the abuse of these emergency powers. So the question is, do you see the Congress or do you see. Uh, uh, those who are concerned about an, an imperial presidency, uh, do, do you see a pushback uh, to, to, to not abuse emergency powers again, the next epidemic, the next crisis? Because if they can, if they did it for COVID, they're doing it for infant formula, they could do it for anything. You know, I think, uh, Jerry, I think that speaks to kind of this broader problem of Congress not being serious about being the first branch of being the legislative branch of government and more just being kind of the uh, the ATM for the executive branch to run the country. And, uh, you know, we got those five bills passed in the Senate. None of them have even had votes in the House because Nancy Pelosi just says, yeah, whatever, I don't care. Uh, And even if we did get votes in the House, which I'm trying to do because I think it'd be very valuable, you know, politically, if nothing else, the president would veto those. And so you've got a situation now where the most significant policy decisions are made by the executive branch. And unless you have two thirds of the House and Senate to overturn it, uh, you could pass a bill to overturn it, but it's going to be vetoed and you're not going to be able to override it. And so I think we've turned the. But at least they're on. But at least they're on record then. Yeah. At right. least the so we're doing right. it anyway. We're right. fighting for it. We're going to try to get it. We've got discharge petitions going in the House. And so we're going to try to get the House votes. And I would love that. I mean, when when the Senate passed the Rand Paul bill to ban the airplane mask mandate with eight Democrats, so it got and Romney voted against it. So it had 57 total votes. The White House said we would veto this. They said we will totally veto this. And it's like, okay, well, you know, let the House have their vote. If he really wants to use the first veto of his presidency (laughs) on keeping the power to snap a mask mandate back on airplanes whenever he feels like it, then, you know, let him veto that, like make him do it. I'm all for that. But I think that structurally, we need something like the RAINS Act, which you know I think we've talked about before. Oh yeah, we need to we need to reverse this process to where to where you know these policy decisions work the way they're supposed to work, which yeah. is the president proposes them, but Congress has to vote on them before they happen. Not like the president does whatever he wants, and Congress has to somehow muster the will to stop him. For for the uninitiated, the RAINS Act is a law that essentially says that if you have a rule that comes out of the executive branch 
what are called major rules. So you can have a different threshold levels. Generally, we're talking about rules that are uh, more than $100 million or more annually. Congress has to vote on that. Um, because of the of the impacts that they, they have, they have to vote affirmatively. On it. Oh, oh yes, say, vote affirmatively. If they yes. don't get a majority in the House and Senate, they don't take effect. There, there you Instead go. of the way it is now, where they do whatever they want unless you can somehow get and, the votes to stop. Yes. And this isn't just fiscal policy, right? Look at no, look is- at look at the uh, Paris the Paris Climate Accords, or look at the disastrous right the the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, these things uh, did not run through the Senate. Uh, they are right. They're presidential or executive agreements, uh, which is why uh, we were in with Obama, out with Trump, back in with Biden. And if you know, if we have DeSantis or whomever in two, 2024, we'll be out again. But again, it, it seems you're right. It seems that the legislature, the the House and the Senate are 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 are, are just aren't doing their job at all. Well, you know, on the Iran deal, we did get we got the same kind of vote. We got a vote to block what the Obama administration was doing, and he vetoed it. Yeah, but 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 however, it should never have been. See that 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 was. But it should have been the other way around. It right, no, been the actual exactly right. But process. that but that was the Republicans who did that, right? And I I don't even understand why they did that. So in, instead of having, a they were vote, trying to politically embarrass the president through right. You know, Oh, they were trying to politically embarrass the president. But it should have been it, actually it, stop. It. it should have been, you know, it should have been the two thirds, whatever it is for the treaty. That's what it should have been. Yeah. Bill, let me ask you this, because the president tweeted of out. Course, Biden's trying week. to bring the Iran deal back. But yeah, yes. But so so the <clears throat> president tweeted out or, or said at some point that he was no longer going to work with Republicans. He basically right, said, he, right. <laughs> I, I, I saw that. I saw that. He's he's been so bipartisan up to yes. now, but he's changing. He's gonna. It's okay. I, I, I couldn't I, think of. I couldn't think of a single example. Listen, Phil, uh, you've given us almost an hour of your time, man, and I, I, we could we could keep going, but uh, um, I don't know I if we covered what you actually wanted to, but we covered some interesting stuff. No, here. no. I, listen, I think we know what we wanted to have you on was to talk about all these things. Actually, the one thing we didn't cover, we didn't get back into this. We talked about it before you came on, and and I do want to get your thoughts on this because we've been talking about replacement theory. Uh, obviously, that's the title of the show. Andrew and Jerry replace replacement theory. Talk a little bit about about the the issue generally. What the left has been saying. But then you tweeted out about this poll out of what was it, the L.A. Times. Yeah. Um, uh, talk talk about that and and how it demonstrates just how to, uh, how out of touch the progressive left is with the rest of America. Well, you know the uh, the left used to love replacement theory. Okay, they didn't use that term for it, but no. they had you know the the rising demographic trend and the demographics is destiny. Yes, all of this kind of stuff. And there was a there was a guy named uh, Rye Teixeira. So this was this is his huge thing, and he had books about it. You know, the rising Hispanic uh, population meant Democrats would never lose again, and Texas was about to flip blue, and all this kind of stuff. And a funny thing happened on the way to, uh, you know, their version of replacement theory, which is uh, Hispanics are becoming Republican now. Yeah, and they're backlashing to Democrat economic policy, and they're also backlashing. I think to democratic social extremism and all the woke craziness and the transgenderism and, uh, you know, all just all of the crazy from the left. And, you know, the, the, I I don't even think they call it political correctness anymore. Now it's wokeness, which is PC wasn't PC enough, I guess. Um, And, you know, this poll I thought was amazing because they asked, uh, I think they polled, you know, a thousand Hispanics in uh, Los Angeles County or something because that was a significant sample size of scientific poll, a real poll. And uh, they said, which of these three terms do you prefer to identify yourself? And they, this was asked only of Hispanics. 
And they say it was Latino, Hispanic, and Latinx. And Latinx, which is the left and the media's preferred, preferred term, got 1%. So if you use the term Latinx, you're literally a one percenter. And uh, that's kind of what the, you know, the, the left is sort of uh, ghettoizing themselves politically. They're, uh, they're, they're adopting these positions that are so outside the mainstream uh, that, you know, I think we're seeing a big shift of Hispanic voters uh, towards Republicans. And that's, I think it was to a certain extent, the theme of the last election, particularly in, in sort of the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, which is shifting pretty hard Republican. But I think that's going to be a, a major theme of this year's elections. And I, I think that both Nevada and Arizona are going to go Republican this year. So I think you're gonna get a Republican governor and Senator in Nevada, and you're gonna get a, a, and you're gonna get Republican governor and Senator in Arizona as well. Although you know, we already have a Republican governor, so that'll be a whole lot of pickup, but I think that's really gonna be driven by this. And you know, the whole idea of the Democrats had that all this, this, this burgeoning, this huge growth of Hispanic voters means we're never going to lose. Well, it, it turns out it might actually be a political problem for them that sure. Hispanic uh, population is growing in this country. Well, Phil Kirpin, thank you so very much. I'm sorry, Jerry, do you have one more question? No, you know, one, one last, just for your comment, because I, 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 like you gentlemen, I just watch the news and I'm a Congress watcher and I read and I, it's, to me, it's just, it's, I, I'm, I, I become uh, infuriated. So you, you saw that Chuck Schumer took to the floor of the Senate and essentially called, you know, essentially called, called out anyone who doesn't, doesn't agree with him a racist. The question is, is that are we going to see a time when McConnell or whomever is the Republican leader, the next Biden, McConnell, I'm sorry, Biden, Schumer, they're constantly calling their Republican colleagues, Republicans broadly, as just plain out racists, white supremacists, white nationalists, but yet we're still cordial, yet we're still um, uh, trying to work with them. Do you see a time when we might have a Republican leader? And, and look, I'm not a, I, 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 I'm neither here nor there with McConnell. I mean, but the fact of the matter is, will Republicans start to fight, uh, give as good as they get in terms of the political wars, the culture wars? Well, you know, this, of course, is the appeal of Trumpism, right? I mean, he's... Uh... You know, he's a he's a bastard, but he's our bastard. And, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's tough. It's tough if you're not Donald Trump. It's tough to take that kind of stance, because when the media pile on comes and everyone attacks you, uh, most people are just not able to weather that they're not able to withstand yeah. it. So they'd rather minimize the risk of it. And, uh, you know, it's and, and then you got the problem that the people who are willing to be full Trump uh, and a lot of them are a little bit crazy and a, little bit wrong yeah. and a lot of policy. And so, you know, you, it's a. Uh, it's tough to get someone who's temperamentally like that, but is also solid substantively. And the, the one person that really fits that bill in my mind is Ron DeSantis. Yeah. And that's why I'm such a big fan of him. Yeah. But it, it takes a very rare uh, combination of political talent and uh, you know principle to be able to do that. All Go right. and check out Phil's work at the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. He is, uh, and I'm sorry, and an American commitment as well. Uh, Phil, thank you so very much for joining us today. Yeah, Phil was great, man. Thank All right, you. My pleasure. Have a good one, guys. Take care. And now it's time for the bottom line. The bottom line. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Jerry, you just, you as we were sort of paused there for a moment, you said something that was very important. I mean, this is why we have these conversations with people like Phil. Uh, Phil's got, you know, it, it, it's it's one of those things where Phil's got a big brain. 
I, I know you like to say that I have a big brain. Phil's brain is bigger than mine, certainly. Um, and being able to sit down with Phil for an hour and talk to talk in detail about these issues. I mean, for, for instance, I, you know, this, this issue of the uh, ESGs capital and markets. the lack of, in, of investment in the capital markets and how that's playing in, that is such a vital point to make in terms of, uh, in terms of why certain leases aren't being undertaken. And again, it, and, it, and, it, and it underlines how dishonest the left, the media is, right? Joe Biden says, uh, Jen Psaki said that there are all these leases and the oil companies aren't, aren't, aren't exploring for oil. Well, the reason for that is because of regulations and because of, 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 of compliance rules and compliance costs, but also because they can't get the money, the investments to do it. The wildcatters, the independents who right, need yes. the big oil companies to invest in them, right? The, the big they, oil companies. But the administration the doesn't distinguish there, right? They just say, oh, oil, the oil companies yes. aren't doing this. Yes. But and again, like everything else, like everything else, it is much, much more complicated right. uh, than, than it gets into, right? It, you know, it's funny. And I'm going to say this. It reminds me of the discussions that we had a decade ago, Jerry, because it was exactly 10 years ago that we started getting involved, back involved in the Law of the Sea Treaty issues. And we were trying to have an in-depth, nuanced conversation about investment and incentivization of investment, disincentives yeah. towards investment. And, and you know, folks who just wanted to look at it from the bumper sticker side of things um, didn't want to get in-depth on, in depth on these things. And just to comment on that real quick. So, so Andrew and I took a position where we supported this, um, this international... Uh, a forum uh, to uh, to hammer out disputes uh, in terms of leasing uh, uh, in the oceans and uh, yeah. uh, drilling and leasing in the oceans. And our libertarian friends said that we were sellouts uh, because uh, we, this is bureaucracy. This is big government. This is the you know uh, global. Uh, this is the global was, elite. Yeah. And 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 but there but there was but, but we asked the very and then hold question. on time out and then there are our conservative friends who were like. We're giving up America's sovereignty, right? Yes, some of international course. Sovereignty, sovereignty. So we 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 attracted the ire of both our libertarian yeah. friends and our conservative. But then, friends. but but the question they could never answer was very simple. Uh, and we would say this: Well, how would we resolve the uh, the lease of the property issues? And their response was always the U.S. Navy. Yes. So their answer was to go to war. Our answer was to go to court. Yeah. And, and, and to, to be really clear, to understand this, there were, just not that I want to spend a lot of time on this, but essentially the law of the sea treaty was going to establish uh, and, and does establish for everybody else, but the United States, a, a, an international property rights regime in terms of being able to access the seabed. Right. So essentially you go and you lease it and someone has to be responsible for the lease. Um, and what this also does, by the way, is again, getting into the issues of, investment, which is why I'm bringing it up, right? Um, if, if you can't prove that you have the right to uh, extract the minerals from a certain place, you're not going to get an investor right. to do it. So it, it, in this instance, right, what we're talking about with regards to what Phil's saying, um, if, if, the, if the big oil companies are so enveloped in this woke agenda that they're no longer prioritizing drilling for oil um, because of someone's political agenda, uh, the folks who are actually taking the risk in terms of exploring, they won't get the uh, investment in their operations in order to do it. And it, once again, now this is not necessarily 
it's government creating the problem on the one hand, but it it is it is you know the left creating the problem on the other in a, in a more general and philosophical sense. Um, I, I mean, I'm sorry. And, about, and, and, I'm, and, sorry go and, ahead. And one thing though that the um, serious Trump supporters got right is that there really is this kind of uh, unigovernment. You know, I asked, I, I purposefully asked um, Phil the question. The next administration can't stop all these bad things from happening. That's right. Because there's so many vested interests, lobbying interests, legal interests, et cetera. And the bottom line is this. The people who could afford uh, the high costs of energy associated uh, with uh, the woke uh, woke green energy movement, uh, the type of people who can afford uh, in- inflation broadly are the elites. Yes, It's working Americans, mom and dads trying to get their kids through school. Uh, they're the ones paying the tax. They're the ones wages are, are, are going in the wrong direction. They're the ones who won't have opportunity. Look, Andrew, big push, right, is public transportation, public transportation. But the fact of the matter is you ask a construction worker who's worked all day, would you rather get in your own car and drive home or take a bus to a transfer to a bus to a subway to get home? And the answer is always going to be, wow, I'd rather get in my own car and go home. And here's and here's what I know, Jerry. I mean, it gets into the political side of it, but, you know, I know so my my car has a 16 gallon tank on it, right? Maybe a little more, but on average, I'm 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 putting 16 gallons of gas into my car. For every 25 cent increase in the gas price of the pump, that's an extra four dollars. Right. So, so I mean, let's, so that's an extra four. Let's think about that. I'm going to do some math on the air. I normally don't do this. So gas was, let's say, uh, uh, let's say it was $3 a gallon a, a year ago. I know it was less than that, but let's say it's $3. So 325, that's $4, 350, that's $8, uh, 375, that's $12, $4, that's $16 extra, uh, you know, uh, uh, four, four twenty-five. that's that's $20. Uh, and then, and then 450, that's $24. That's $24. Every time you fill up, I, you know, uh, yeah. gas, uh, an increase and over the course of a year, right. You think about this. So let's say you fill up once a week. I'm not going to do the math. I, 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 I could, but I'm, I'm not going to, but just think about that. That's $24 once a week. Uh, that's a hundred dollars a month. That's $1,200 a year. I know it's going to be more. You doing the math? Yeah. What is it? How, how much it was? So twenty four dollars times fifty. Let's fifty or fifty two. Let's say fifty fifty Phillips. It's over. It's over twelve hundred dollars a year. Twelve hundred dollars, right? Yeah. So so twelve hundred dollars a year. That is out. That is just just because of gas. Right. That's out of people's working families' pockets. That's and as Phil said, that's money you have to spend. Right. You, you, you have to fill up if you want to go to work. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. We, we can get into this. And then but, and, and on top of this, the increase in food costs and the and all the rest of it. What what's the number now? So I, I just read recently in The Wall Street Journal that the average the 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 average cost. Uh, for every American. Uh, the inflation cost is, I think, five hundred and sixty nine dollars per person. Yeah, that would make sense. That's that's approach that's approaching uh, six thousand uh, dollars per year for a family of six, or for 
I think it's per person. Oh, per, I, I, I'll go yeah. back and check yeah. that. I don't know. I, I, I get that. You know, think about that. Oh, my, no, I see. My wife fills her five times yeah. a year. Five hundred dollars a month times a year is 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 six thousand dollars. So, so if it's a family, of, so it's a if it's a family of four. That's twenty four thousand dollars a year that is now out of their pocket with no right with no commensurate rise in wages. Um, uh, and, and you're not going to be able to offset it. And and if you and if you are, we didn't even get into the whole issue of artificial wage inflation. Listen, I, the other thing I wanted to focus on because we are talking about re- <laughs> excuse me replacing replacement theory is getting into what Phil was saying regarding demographics. And I'm reminded of something. Um, that was starting to be true a few years back. I know it's definitely true now. You know, Phil was talking about in terms of the Latino population, how, and there's my dog, in terms of the Latino population, how it's both, um, uh, it's, it's both conservative policy, like social policy, but also economic policy. And I was reminded of the fact that, uh, and I think it's still true, that that the most rapidly growing segment of the entrepreneurial population is Hispanic women. Yes. And, and, and if you make it harder for Hispanic women to do business, this is going to translate into stuff that's going on at the pump uh, stuff that's going on at the polls. Absolutely. And, and, and again, you know, Barone did a book, I forget when, but it was a, a decade ago called the new Americans. And he wrote about this. Look, I want to be very clear about this. The left's fetish with race has damaged the American spirit, American culture. Uh, it has caused us to, uh, to, to be divisive, uh, but it's all for politics. Yes. And, and I've said for years, Andrew, you've said with me for years that their bet that demographics changing demographics will mean more power for them. I've been saying for decades yeah. they're wrong because you can't just uh, quantify a human being by the superficial nature of the color of their skin. You know, and, and this has always been the 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 Achilles heel of the left in this, and, and frankly, the soft bigotry uh, of the left. It, it's it's the, not even soft; it's it's, it's outright so, bigotry. It, but here, but here, but yeah. the New Americans talked about how um, how the this was always part of the American, you know, the, the, we, we've we heard about replacement theory before, right? The Irish Catholic, the Italian yeah. Catholic, the, you know, the Eastern Europeans, whatever. Uh, and Barone did this book where, where you could trace uh, waves of immigration That's right. uh, against new waves of immigration. And, and by second and third generation, uh, the, the voting patterns are very American. Yes. And so it makes but- sense that Asian Americans, th- there is a growing Western African immigration uh, population in America, uh, uh, Asian Americans. Uh, they're, 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 in no way are these groups going to, uh, in, in lockstep, support this Democratic Party. But here is, here is, the, here is the, the, the problem. And the one thing we have to be guarded against is that you're talking about folks who came here and are coming here because America is an exceptional nation yes. and they want to make their dreams real. But if the subsequent generations under them are being taught that America is a you're right. evil That's... and that it was founded on these evil ideals, yes. then there is this, there is the, the, the generational disconnect between right. them. And, and we run it, we run into huge, huge problems. Listen, before we go, uh, and we got, we got a couple minutes left here, but, yeah, but, 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 but what you just said though, yeah might be the most important thing said on the program today. And that is, you know, the idea of look, new 
new immigrants to, to America is always a good thing. Absolutely. However, we can't be a sick society that uh, that 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 in our public school system, in our university system, in our in, in uh, from Hollywood, be a society that says America is an evil, an evil country. Right. You know, and there was a fear a, a very long time. And we've seen this play out in Europe as, again, demographics have changed in Europe. Uh, we have seen sort of national identities in Europe change. Right. Uh, our policies changed. Outlooks have changed. It was, I believe it was uh, um, uh, Friedman who said, you cannot have uh, uh, open borders and massive social welfare states at the same time. You you just can't do it because of uh, you bankrupt a society and you fundamentally change a society. Um, You know, so so here the issue is and, and, you know, we want to guard, you know, and I'm not someone who believes for instance, that America is being overtaken by Sharia law, right? You know, you have right. uh, wackadoos who want to put that out there. But what we want to make sure is that, you know, as as people are coming to America and they're coming to America, because again, remember, the American dream in the end is the entrepreneur's dream. It is about taking some desire of yours and making it manifest because we have the greatest free market limited government society in the world. What we don't want to do is have people who are socialists coming from socialist nations coming to America. Right? It's it's like what what you see in states like Texas or Nevada or what have you, where people migrate from blue states to red states and then proceed to try to change the character of those states. Right. There, right. That that sort of we 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 see this writ large, and in fact, that's probably the, the greatest way of 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 talking about. Um, um, why anyway, it's, it's a way of looking at this issue in a way that isn't focused on, on, on race, but is focused on ideology and how ideologies yes, change. That's exactly um, right. Listen, I want to, I want to say this much. I don't know. I don't know if you have Paramount plus Jerry, but I want to talk, I want to, I want to speak a piece about the, the best show on TV right now that I'm watching. Yeah. Uh, which is the offer. We just finished watching winning time on HBO and love that um, really innovative and great. We're watching the offer, which is the story of uh, of the making of the Godfather. Yep, with Miles Teller as Al Ruddy, Al Ruddy, who later went on to produce the Atlas Shrugged movies. You know, I I got to meet him in that regard. We can talk. Set aside the quality of the Atlas Shrugged. So movies. the offer is not a film; it's a uh, series. It is a series. It is a limited run series, um, talking about the development of the Godfather, and then talking about the back and forth between. Uh, Al Ruddy and Joe Colombo of the Colombo crime family. And what's really interesting, Jerry, is first of all, in the first couple of episodes, they were directed by the whole thing is being executive produced by a guy who um, um, has become a movie producer, but he was an actor on Band of Brothers, the, the yeah. TV series. Yeah. And there are a couple of guys from Band of Brothers in the first couple of episodes. I'm like, God, that's really weird that they're all together. Um, but it's, it's, it's really good. It's really well done. The guy who plays Robert Evans, are you familiar with Robert Evans at all? No. All right. Robert Evans was a very famous, uh, a movie producer, um, and studio executive in the 1970s, late sixties into the seventies and into the eighties. He produced <clears throat> the Godfather or greenlit the Godfather. He was behind love story, um, and, and, uh, Chinatown. He did a book called the kid stays in the picture, which was his biography. And they took the audio book and they turned it into a, um, uh, and of course he had to narrate his own audio book. They turned it into a documentary with film clips and pictures. And it's, it became very famous when that came out. He's got a very distinct voice 
and a very distinct inflection. The guy who's playing Robert Evans is brilliant um, and, and, and spot on just in terms of his arrogance and his outlook. In the book, the kid stays in the picture. He refers to Ali McGraw as snot nose. He's very, very, uh, very anyway, it's, it's great stuff. The offer, uh, go in, and check it out. And by the way, introduced our 17 year old to the original Top Gun in anticipation of, uh, of the, the sequel coming out next week. I have, I have very low hopes for the sequel. Oh, I am. I not me. I'm all in. And I've got, well, I will say this much. The only look, well, let me say this first. Yeah. The only reason why Top Gun, the original worked was because there was this eighties infused uh, patriotism. That's why it, it, look Top Gun, the original yes. movie was, 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 it wasn't a good movie. No, I disagree. Disagree wholeheartedly. Oh, I, I'm going to say the Top Gun is one of the closest things to a perfect movie ever made. It was it was a good movie, I think, because it had that kind of Reagan-esque 80s America first, America's cool kind of vibe to it. If Top Gun 2 doesn't have that vibe, um, I'm worried about it. No, Top Gun 2 is going to be all some of it's going to be about nostalgia and some of it's going to be about revisiting these characters. Some of it is going to be about about the, the personal stories that are out there and the conflict between Maverick and Goose's son and Maverick and Penny Benjamin, uh, who you know was referred to in the first movie and this one played by Jennifer Connolly. But here's here's what you know, the original Top Gun. It's a great it's a great story. It's a well-written story. Um, listen, they're young actors, but for what they're doing, I think it's fantastic. The cinematography is amazing. It's got great pacing. The original? Yes. Oh no, Andrew. Yes. Oh, it was it was horribly shot. What are you talking it was, about? It was it was oh it was cheesy. No, not oh, at all. Was... Again, when was the last I know what you're referring to, Jerry. You were uncomfortable with with the the the, the kissing scenes, the making out scenes, and I understand. This. Well, I also, you know, my wife uh, Erica thought that Tom uh, uh, Tom Cruise in, in Top Gun was like hot, and that always bothered me. <laughs> See, there you go. Her 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 her, 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 her one of her friends. Jerry, yeah. All the more reason why you should go back and visit it, especially if you have a big screen TV. Because you you see top you see Tom Cruise when he still had his big horse teeth, and it'll totally dispel the myth of Tom Cruise being hot. Well, I I remember being in high school, and uh, and Erica and her friend Paula would watch would watch Top Gun and but and re, and and replay the volleyball scene uh, of over and over again. Whatever. Oh, it was. Well, listen. Oh, I get it. And, and you're also bothered by the latent homoeroticism in it. No, I I'm not bothered it. by it. it. But it's 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 it, what's what's the word? Schlocky. Shoddy, what's the word for it? I, I think you're talking about there's an 80, there's an 80s, it's over the top in certain ways, in, in that yes. regard, right? I mean, again, there but is, the re- no more, but I agree there with is you. no I, more I, homoerotic scene in, in, in mainstream. I'm not cinema. sure if it's homoerotic, it could just be, just be, you know, giving the guys without their shirts for the girls. But, but my point is this, though, what made it work, I agree with you, I think it's a great movie, but what made it work, it had this 80s vibe to it of patriotism of america and if if top gun 2 doesn't have that i think i think it's, i will tell you the movie holds up and i yes i'm a patriot so maybe that's part of it i think uh you know just even anyway go and watch if you get a chance i mean if you get a chance here you should watch it again um maybe without erica because she'll, you know, ooh and ah over tom cruise and 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 uh, the rest well thankfully he's done enough crazy things since that uh 
she's off it. Yeah, yeah. She's over it. Got it, got it, got it. Um, <clears throat> in any case, we watched uh, we watched the end of Moon Knight. Eh. Did you ever watch Reacher, by the way? Oh, I love Reacher. Reacher, yeah, yeah, okay. Reacher's fantastic. It was, yeah, yeah. it was a great series. Um, um, and we saw the trailer for um, for uh, She-Hulk, uh, Attorney at Law. Oh my goodness! I am, and I'm in. I'm, I'm, and I'm the only one in my family who's in on this. I'm, I'm, I am all. She, all, she what? Hulk. She's, she's uh, uh, Bruce, Bruce's cousin, who's an attorney, and I guess somehow gets into the experiment and becomes She-Hulk. And she's She-Hulk attorney at law. Oh, goodness I'm gracious. all in. All right. All right, Jerry. You got a show on Sunday. Uh, show on Sunday. And again, you know, uh, what I've decided to do uh, for these programs is to take these issues. Frankly, Andrew, this conversation we had isn't being had anywhere yeah, else. I agree wholeheartedly. And so what I want to do is, is take a mini version of this and do it on Sunday. And I think it's a great idea. about these topics. Well, listen, if you want, uh, if you can't get Phil for Sunday, you want the audio file of the interview to play, you're, you're welcome to it. I'll send it to you. Um, I have, uh, just so you all know, uh, really that essay that I did uh, or earlier this week um, on, um, um, what was it on? I don't even remember. Oh, on uh, Federalist. Oh, Lord. Feder- yeah, it was on federalism, but it was, yeah, it was, it was federalism and, uh, and the Netherlands Constitution of 1579. Yes. I almost said the French. Yeah, thank yes. you. Well, that's well, that's and that's that's just it. That came out. Um, I have on Monday and Tuesday coming up uh a, a pieces on the absolute monarchy of the Sun King, Louis the Fourteenth, uh, and how that informed the founders or what the founders were concerned about. Actually, really quick, Jerry. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I, I you know, there was there was antipathy on the part of Alexander Hamilton and John Jay. I think I talked to you about this yesterday on the phone. Uh, yeah. Antipathy towards Hamilton and 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 by uh, Jay and Hamilton. It turns out, by the way, that 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 John Jay's great grandfather was a Huguenot or Huguenot, depending on you how you want to pronounce it. And we talk about that in the essay and how that plays in the Constitution on Tuesdays. So, uh, Jerry, uh, what do you want people to uh, to find? Find the truth. Plant your feet. Stand firm. God bless you. Have a great week, everybody. Have fun and stay safe.